This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. to look out over this room and see all of you here. Um, I, I do vividly remember coming to the University of Chicago Law School as a brand new faculty member in the fall of 1981, a long time ago, obviously before most of you were born. And at the time, um, I guess if you had asked me, the challenge would not have so much been what was it like being the only woman on the faculty, which I was uh, the first year I was here, because the first person to whom uh, Samantha referred was Soya Menchikov, who had left um, long before I came, quite some number of years before, before I came. And the second person was Professor Lee Brillmeyer, who had come to the law school in, I believe, the fall of 1979, but had left just before I arrived um, because she decided she wanted to be elsewhere. Um, so, so, okay, so there I am. I'm the only woman. However, if any of you, does, does anyone in this room have children? Okay, not too many of you. But if you even have ever been around children, you will appreciate that when I say my older child at the time was 19 months old and my younger child was a week old when I started teaching, it was that, I would have said, was the greater challenge. Um, I eventually had a third child, too, and so had an exciting time when I was teaching here when I had three children, the oldest of whom was four. And um, busy days, I don't quite know how I did it, but... Um, in any event, the law school itself, of course, from the faculty point of view, was nowhere near the, the kind of diversity that you observe today. And so even if you think there's room for improvement, I guarantee you there has already been a lot of improvement. And other forms of diversity are important as well. So I thought I would take a minute just to reflect on that before we go on to the topic that I thought you might be interested in, making your voice heard. Because, in some sense, the question why diversity is, is a prerequisite to wondering why you care if you're making your voice heard or not. Now, some years ago, actually quite some time ago, but after I was on the court, I had gone down to the University of Illinois Law School and had given a talk that I labeled a little facetiously as, you know, women in law, colon, men in skirts, question mark. Um, and, and so the idea was to say, you know, what, why do we care about that sort of diversity? And I would give you two different examples of kinds of issues that you might be engaged with, which I think cause you to maybe wonder about it. It's something that Justice Sotomayor was asked about during her confirmation hearings. Case number one, you're an antitrust lawyer. You're like me. I mean, that's what I did in private practice. That's what I did at the Department of Justice. And, you know, you happen to be a woman or you happen to be a whatever else you may be. Um, does it matter? Are you any different from the men who are there as the antitrust lawyers? Case number two, you're a civil rights lawyer and you focus on employment discrimination. In that instance, does it make any difference that you are from a particular group that has not been in the mainstream of the law, whatever that group may be? I would say it probably matters both times, but maybe in different ways. And naturally, the easiest way that it matters is that there is just tremendous talent in all of us, and if you are excluding people from certain parts of the legal profession, you are impoverishing the legal profession itself. You are impoverishing society. We need those insights from people just because they're, they're smart and interesting and they've seen a different corner of the world than you've seen. So I would say it, it, in some ways from that angle, it hardly needs justifying. Antitrust is a, is a trickier Topic, And in fact, I'm going to a conference um, in June in Brussels honoring one of my very dear friends who has been in the area of international antitrust at NYU her entire career, Eleanor Fox. Um, and I'll be talking about this there. Eleanor 
if you want to characterize antitrust theory, is more on sort of the liberal democratic side of things, the side that thinks that size actually does matter, the side that thinks that um, anti-competitive behavior matters, and the side that is less likely to be guided by uh, just sort of a strict application of industrial organization economics. It's a side that worries about distributional consequences of different behaviors and is less likely to say, we don't care if firm A pushed firm B out of the market because consumers can still buy the product. So there's a great debate in antitrust about that, although less so now than before. But I think Eleanor's understanding of what it felt like to be the outsider, what it felt like to be the small firm who was pushed out of the market by a big firm, the subject of some form of exclusionary behavior, is not unrelated to the fact that she is a woman scholar in this area as opposed to um, you know, your traditional white male scholar. She has understood that antitrust is, among many other important things, a policy choice about the way we run our economies, and she's been willing to push... Uh, against some rather well-accepted uh, ideas from the so-called Chicago School. Chicago is famous in this respect, although the Chicago School is often mischaracterized, I think. But um, in any event, so I think even in that area, it makes a difference. It's pretty easy to show why it makes a difference if you're talking about the um, discrimination field uh, but I, I would actually say you still need a, an overall type of diversity. So, and, and I'll say this especially in today's world, where in order to proceed with a complaint, as I hope everybody remembers from their first year civil procedure classes, you have to have a complaint that states a plausible claim. Many of you will remember that this is not a favorite word of mine, but it's the one that the Supreme Court used, and it's the one that's there. So what's plausible? What's plausible to me? What's plausible to you? This is in part going to be a function of your experience. Uh, is it plausible that somebody would engage in a certain form of behavior? And you at least have to be willing to understand that it's somewhere within the realm of the possible without, as I sometimes like to say, thinking that little green men from Mars have landed on the lawn. You know, there are certainly litigants who think that, but uh, they are not the ones who are um, prevailing in court. So, you know, is it possible to take actually a very topical issue, one that everyone from the vice president to the American Law Institute to individual universities are working on, the subject of sexual harassment on campuses, you know, how is that going to be handled? You need a lot of voices in that debate. You need the voices of people who believe they've been victimized. You, mean the, you need the voices of people who believe they've been wrongfully accused. You need the voices of people who think that they've been stereotyped as, as a likely accuser when they haven't even, or accused person, when they haven't even done anything. You, you need all of those voices because you are not going to come up with a credible, respectable uh, policy if you fail to understand the complexity of the issue. So this is, I think, a perfect example of why diversity among the student body, diversity on the faculty, uh, a diversity of voices writing academic articles or doing empirical research on the subject, you need all of that. Um, so, I mean, I could certainly belabor the point, but I think diversity is something that enriches our discussion, and it's something that's actually necessary for us to come to the right results in many cases. So, um, how about my topic, um, making one's voice heard? Um, it's fine to have a diverse group, say, of students in a classroom or associates at a law firm or people on the bench, but if the people who have traditionally been outsiders can't make their point of view heard, then it's not going to make any difference. And so you have to think about how that is done. And this is actually something that I began thinking about as far back as law school. This was a time uh, when law schools across the country had 
somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of the class uh, was women. I think in, in many law schools it was like mine, it was 18 percent. So not, I mean, you weren't invisible, but on the other hand, you were not, you know, anywhere near the, the levels of today. It was even worse for African Americans. They were few and far between in many law schools, and so there was a real sense, actually, uh, among the students of, of isolation, and, and it's, it's difficult if you're the only one in the class to be the one, you know, raising your hand and trying to say, oh, I have something to say, you know, because maybe you would just assume, actually, it's probably, maybe you would anyway just as soon sit there and not get called on. But uh, if, if you have something to say and you are not in the mainstream, it can be a little bit more difficult. There have certainly been studies about diversity in the classroom at various law schools around the country. Uh, I know one particularly good one that was done uh, at Yale, and you would think, oh, gee, you know, Yale, they must have all the problems solved. But actually, no. Uh, there's still an issue of you know women being being feeling free, feeling just um, as comfortable as others to speak up in a classroom. And the same would be true of various minority groups. So you have to begin by thinking about that. So what I did uh, in law school, since I was concerned about that, is I, I tried to set myself the the task without being one of those obnoxious people who's always raising their hand. Of course, you probably have never seen anyone like that, but I had a few people like that in my classes. Um, I won't tell you their names, but I still remember their names. Um, <laughs> but without being one of those people, how do you become one of the people who is contributing, who's making their voice heard? Well, there are a couple things you have to overcome. First of all, you have to overcome, if it's an issue for you, the idea that you don't have anything really to add that isn't already being said by somebody else. You know, why are my thoughts thoughts that need to be put into the mix? Well, that I can assure you, if you're at this law school, that's wrong. Uh, your thoughts do belong in the mix, all of them. And just because somebody else has enough self-confidence or hubris or whatever else they have to be raising their hand all the time, or even some of the time, doesn't mean that your voice isn't really important. Whether it's just to say, I agree with what somebody said, or say, you know, I think there's something they've overlooked, or whatever. In order to do that, you really have to be engaged in the subject matter of the class. I don't really recommend doing what I once did in an income tax class when I had not actually read the material. Um, and I'm not any kind of income tax expert. But somebody said something, and I thought, oh, I don't think that's right. So, so I raised my hand and said something about it. Luckily, it wasn't completely off base. But um, <laughs> it, it, it could have been for, for all I knew. But, but, but anyway... You know, you have to engage in it. You've got to think about it. And if you set yourself the task, especially I would say in something like seminars, to say, I am going to say something in each class. It doesn't have to be monopolizing the whole class. It could be a sentence. It could be a point. But I'm going to be a presence in the classroom. I want my fellow students to know that I'm thinking about it, that this is something I have to say. And certainly the professor as well, to the extent that you're hoping ever to get recommendations from professors or, or what have you, you become somebody that they know, that they say, oh, well, so-and-so really contributed to moving the, the, the debate forward in the class. Um, say something. Just let your voice, like, literally be heard. And if you speak up, if you have any reluctance about doing that, it will become easier over time. I, I absolutely guarantee you it will become easier over time. There are people who are very nervous about it. I saw one guy, this was last week, I guess, because um, we have oral arguments every week, and this poor man came up to the podium, and I'm telling you, you could see him just physically shaking, and I wanted to say to him, just please take a deep breath, but I figured that would embarrass him even more than the shaking, so I didn't say anything. But, um, but anyway, if you've gotten used to speaking up, it, it really does become easier. And if you've gotten used to having your ideas tested, it becomes easier. 
this place is a great place for that. If you sign up for any of the workshops or if you go to any of the things, um, we used to joke and say, you know, the University of Chicago Law School was the kind of place that you had to put your batting helmet on in the morning before you showed up for work because people can be pretty hard hitting. But think of the godfather. You know, it's business. It's not saying that you have a bad idea. <laughs> it's just business. <laughs> and so if your idea has some problems with it, better to find out. I mean, that's my philosophy with writing opinions. I often show opinion drafts to colleagues who don't necessarily see the world the same way I do, and they show theirs to me, and we'll give feedback to each other, and sometimes it's a little painful to see, you know, I don't agree at all with part two of your opinion because of the following reasons, but I mean, I would rather know. Maybe I'm not right in part two of the opinion, or maybe I can beef it up so that the objections that the person who isn't sympathetic to my point of view have made will have less force. But so part of making your voice heard is just saying something, is, is putting yourself out there and taking a position. And that's mostly kind of in school. I would say beyond uh, law school, whether it's you know, summer jobs or whatever else you do, whether, even whether you have a legal career or not, there are so many opportunities for you, again, to either metaphorically or literally speak up. So here, here's uh, an example that one of my lawyer offspring uh, encounters from time to time. There you are, and you're sitting in a conference room. It's a meeting with the client, and she's involved in some very big litigation, um, you know, these monster cases that you hear about. So it's not like there's a lawyer on one side and a lawyer on the other side. There could be 15 or 20 people in the room, many of whom are lawyers from lots of firms, and they're all sitting down trying to coordinate. So the example that everybody worries about is you know, people are maybe deciding on their strategy for the brief. And she says, you know, I think we should emphasize X point, or I don't like the way Y point has been handled because of whatever, because it overlooks a recent Supreme Court decision. Well, what if nobody listens? You know, there's this little voice, you know, in the corner, and you don't want to, like, stand up on the table and shout and wave your hands. Or worse, what if five minutes later, and I assure you, this has happened to her, and she's only been a lawyer. So she graduated from law school in 2011, so she's not so different from, from you. Worse, she makes the point, it just kind of sits there, nothing happens. And five minutes later, John makes the point, same point, and everybody says, oh, John's made a brilliant point here, uh, you know, let's fix a brief in, in that section. She's sitting there thinking, wait a minute, didn't, you know, I must be going crazy, didn't I say that five minutes ago? That happens, and it's not good. People should not fail to give you the credit that you deserve. Now, the best outcome for that is if John then says, well, yes, I think this is an important point, but I was really just repeating what Katie said. Okay, that's a classy person who, who, will, do, who will do that. And we hope that there are classy people. And I would urge you, turning it around now, in your role as colleague, as someday mentor of other people, to keep your ear out for that kind of thing. Help them. Help the right person receive credit for, for points that that person makes. Another thing you can do, if you don't happen to have somebody else in the room, either John or perhaps you know the partner who's managing it or whatever, to say, well, actually, that's what Katie said five minutes ago, uh, is for Katie to speak up again and say, well, actually, you know, that was the point I was trying to make, but you, you can't just sort of say, hey, I said that first, because that makes you sound petty and, you know, things that you probably don't want to seem like. Uh, but you can elaborate. You can say, but, but here is, you know, the, the further explanation. Just some hook to get your voice back in the debate. Making sure that you're not overlooked can be a real trick if you also want to make sure that you are not uh, being completely obnoxious. Now, the completely obnoxious part doesn't seem to bother some people, but it, it, I, I'm not recommending it. 
So, so that's the speaking up during a meeting. Finding opportunities to express yourself in writing is also very helpful, whether it's you know, writing a column you know, for the bar or the firm's newsletter, you know, uh, Diane on recent developments in federal procedure or something like that. People begin to get used to the idea that you know about that. You know, maybe you're interested in, in uh, ethical questions that have come up before the firm. I can assure you that legal ethics, which tends to be kind of a dry subject at law schools, I'm, I'm not, maybe it's not here, but um, tends to be that way. In the real world, completely different. Th this is, sometimes these are things that people don't even realize are ethical problems. Sometimes you're shocked because it's so obvious that it's an ethical problem that somebody did something. I happen to see in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin today um, that the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission in Illinois, the ARDC, which is the body that does all of this stuff, decided to go light on some guy who commingled client funds with his regular funds. And I thought, that's like ethics 101. It's, you know, don't do that. Um, it's, it, may, I, apparently he had mitigated, by which I suppose it means that he restored to the appropriate client account uh, all the money that he had been kind of using as his own piggy bank. But um, it, anyway, so ethics can be something that uh, there's almost always a demand for that. Look and see where those demands are and see if you can be the person who is, you know, the the local expert. Again, if it's a small firm, maybe it's something through a bar association. If it's a larger firm, the firm probably has it itself. Um, and, and I recognize that this can be hard because you are going to be entering a world, if you're in private practice, where there is much less room for what we used to call firm general work, for just general administrative work, and much less room for pro bono work unless you are a serious workaholic um, because the vast majority of firms either cap the number of pro bono hours that they will credit you with when they're trying to decide if you're working hard enough, um, or maybe they don't count that at all. Maybe they say, we expect you to work you know, 2,400 hours in the year, and if you've got enough stamina to work another 600 hours on the pro bono case so that you've billed 3,000 hours, good for you. Um, but I know plenty of firms that are like that. I actually, through my former law clerks, have a pretty good sense of, of what's out there uh, in terms of current practice. So it's hard. What I'm telling you you have to do is a bit hard. But it's still really important to get your voice out there. You can get it out there in writing. You can get it out there in a niche. You certainly can get it out there orally. Um, and you can get out there if you have, I, I mean, I hope that everybody has something that they care about beyond you know, law school and, and all of that. And if you're out in the community doing whatever that something may be, whether it's um, a little bit more law-related, you know, legal services, the legal, legal Services Corporation has a desperate, desperate need for volunteer lawyers to work with it. It estimates that um, of the people who are eligible for LSC services, and those people are people whose income is at 125% of the poverty level or lower, who have a civil case and not a class action, they can serve one in five, and all of the rest have unmet legal needs. They don't even know sometimes that it is a legal need. That's a huge problem, so if you want to address that problem, there are fantastic organizations. There are organizations that look at elderly, that health. You know, maybe, maybe you just want to uh, do something that's not at all law-related. Um, you like Habitat for Humanity, or you like um, working, you know, there are all sorts of great things that the churches do. Um, so, but, but something, and if you do that, again, you, you become a community leader. You become somebody whose voice matters, who, you know, maybe is going to run for the school board of your local area and be on the, you know, the K-8 to um, elementary school board. So all of these things sort of 
elevate you from just, just kind of the crowd and being somebody who's able to have a positive impact on whatever the issues are that you're interested in. And the fundamental point that lies behind all of it is that your voice matters. Your voice is different from other people's voices. It's different in part because of whatever background you happen to have, what family you came from, what part of the country you came from, your racial, your ethnic background, your gender. All of those add up to you being you. And uh, I think for myself, looking at the Seventh Circuit, which I've served on for a long time now, um, since mid-1995, I think it's made a great difference to our court to have what, what is now four women out of what ought to be 11 judges, is in fact now nine judges, although we got nominees yesterday, uh, so we'll see what happens to them. I'm a little... What the right word to use. I, I will just note that in the news reports announcing the two nominees to the Seventh Circuit, one from Wisconsin and one from Indiana, the news reports also indicated that one of the senators in each of those states expressed reservations about the nominees. And what is it? It's January 24th. Uh, sorry, it's January 14th, 2016. And if one of the senators is expressing reservations, we'll see what happens. I mean, of course, the court would be delighted to have more people since being nine instead of 11 is, you know, it's a significant cut. Um, but anyway, we have four women on the court. One of them is an African-American. She's the only African-American who has ever sat on the Seventh Circuit, which is unfortunate. Um, and the district courts are doing a little bit better than that uh, on the diversity front. Um, and in fact, the district courts in recent years, there's, there are two new uh, district court judges who are African-American. There is um, you know, a Korean-American judge. There's a Chinese-American judge. There are uh, the chief judge of the district court, Ruben Castillo, is Hispanic. Um, so, and Jorge Alonso uh, as well. Uh, so, so the district court, in the aggregate, is turning into a court that I think really does draw from all of the communities that exist in the Northern District of Illinois, uh, which is great. The Seventh Circuit, as I said, not so much. Uh, and, there, and there are other forms of diversity as well that we lack. Um, you can really break down the Seventh Circuit judges into the people who came from an academic background. That would be Judge Posner, of course, Judge Easterbrook, myself, and he was an active judge, Judge Ripple, also had been exclusively an academic. Then there are the people who came up through the U.S. Attorney's Office. That's a lot of them. Uh, that's Judge Flom, that's um, Judge Rovner, that's Judge Williams. Um, Judge Sykes came from the Wisconsin Supreme Court, but essentially had been a judge her whole career, as was Judge Caney. He started out when he was like two <laughs> as, as a state court judge in Indiana. Maybe he was 32, but, you know, it was close. Um, and he, state court judge in Indiana, federal district court judge in Indiana, Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. So we actually do not have anybody on the Seventh Circuit who was either in a small firm private practice or in a large firm private practice. Um, Judge Easterbrook and I and Judge Posner are kind of twofers in the sense that we also spent time at the Department of Justice. He was the Deputy Solicitor General. Judge Posner spent some time in the Solicitor General's office. I spent time in the Antitrust Division. Um, okay, that's fine. I mean, that's it's good. It's useful. But there's a lot more out there. You know, there are people from smaller communities, there are people from larger communities, and we, we don't really have that on the court. And it's too bad, because the variety of cases that come to the court certainly represents the entire gamut of what you can imagine. And sometimes, I'll give you another example of where diversity matters and where having somebody who understands what is being said to them makes a difference. And that comes in the form of problems that have arisen with the immigration judges. 
Um, of course, the immigration judges are dealing with people from any country you can think of in the world, and the United Nations at this point represents not quite 200 countries. Um, so people's behavior patterns are different. What's regarded as polite, impolite, properly respectful, not properly respectful, all of those things are culturally defined. So we had a case where an immigration judge at one point felt that a woman who was testifying before him was not testifying in a frank and credible way. Uh, and of course, they're entitled to make credibility determinations. Why did he think this? Because she was standing like this and looking at the floor. Why was she doing that? Because she was Chinese. And to look directly at him in the part of China that she was from would have been an inappropriate demeanor. It would not have been the right thing. He's an authority figure. She didn't understand that, that actually in this context, a very foreign one to her, um, what she was doing was completely misinterpreted. So again, here's the lawyer another place where your voice has to be heard. You are the voice of the client. Now, unfortunately, in the immigration context, although people have the right to hire their own lawyer, so in that sense, they have a right to be represented, they don't have a right to a lawyer furnished by the government. So a great number of people do not have lawyers, or they have deplorably bad lawyers. Um, that's just a fact. And the lucky ones, and actually there's been empirical research done on this, the lucky ones who get you know, either an excellent immigration lawyer or who are being represented pro bono by the immigration clinic at a law school or who are represented by the pro bono department of one of the major firms, there is a direct correlation between that and success in the proceeding. It's just a fact. And so having that voice of the lawyer out there for the person who doesn't know how to make his or her voice heard is absolutely vital. But you're not going to do that until you know how to make your own voice heard. You have to be willing you know, to, to get out there and, and use whatever tactics are available to you. So I guess my basic message is that it starts now, it starts in law school, or, or maybe it started for you in undergraduate school or high school or whenever you first realized that this was the kind of profession you wanted to be in. We are in a communication profession. You have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be willing to be thought you know, not on top of things. It reminds me vividly of, of, a, of a talk I once gave um, this was very embarrassing, but I, I'll tell you about it anyway. So I had gone to France for a week, and the language of the visit was going to be French. And I'm okay in French. I'm not fluent, but I'm okay in French. So I had prepared all sorts of things. I was meeting with the Ministry of Justice, and I went down to Bordeaux to the judges' school, and I gave a talk to them there. And then it was all supposed to culminate in a seminar at the... Supreme Court, the Court of Cassation, uh, on the ways in which the common law and the civil law vary. And so obviously I'd been invited to say something about the common law. And they had told me that my topic was, and I will say this in French, les tiers intervenants. All right, well, I made the terrible mistake of thinking that that meant what I thought it meant. Um, I thought it meant third-party interveners, you know, who could intervene in a lawsuit. And, of course, we have a whole set of rules about that. I found out, to my horror, at the cocktail party the night before that, no, that's not what they wanted to talk about. They wanted to talk about class actions. And I thought, oh, okay. Um, I mean, I could talk about class actions. If I'd been doing it in English, it wouldn't have been a problem at all. Doing it in French on the fly was a different thing altogether. So I raced back to my hotel room. This was a clumsier time of internet connection, so I had to hook up my laptop.
to the phone line, and then there was this gigantic, you know, 28-digit string of things that you had to get the thing to dial into the modem at the cord and all sorts of stuff. But it was something. It was something. So I wrote a new speech um, on class actions that night, thinking, well, I guess this is it. Um, and gave the talk and took Q&A and did everything, all the while, somewhere in the back of my mind, thinking, do not think about the number of mistakes you are making when you speak, because you will then freeze up and never say another word in front of any of these people. Um, and so I didn't. I just put it to one side and, and survived the experience. And actually, I think it turned out okay. And, and the fact that I was attempting it at all, I guess, maybe they appreciated. But um, it was... <laughs> embarrassing, I will say, and, and to, to, to do it, you had to be willing to just go ahead and make the mistakes in front of them, and so that's my other piece of advice, whether it's in class, you know, maybe you don't have the best insight into the case, so what? You know, if you're going to learn something from putting out what you see in it, and you will remember what you learned much better if you have engaged in the conversation. There's simply no doubt about that. Um, I actually remember a question I got wrong on my, in, in an exam in eighth grade U.S. history. So that probably just tells you how compulsive I am. But the, um, <laughs> the question, the, and, and you'll, I mean, it's funny at this point, given the way my life has gone, I certainly had no idea it was gonna go this way at that time. But we were on some unit, you know, about separation of powers. <laughs> and the question was, what, um, what's the proper title for the person who, as it were, you know, heads the Supreme Court? And so I wrote down, wrongly, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The correct answer is Chief Justice of the United States. I still remember. I mean, I mean, maybe I would have remembered anyway at this point, but uh, I definitely remember getting that wrong. But it's, but it sticks with you, you know. And if you throw out an idea in class, or you know, with your colleagues at a law firm, and it doesn't happen to be uh, either right or the best way to go, that's fine. You know, don't impose upon yourself a standard of perfection that nobody can ever reach, because that would actually have the effect of silencing you, and that's not ever going to be a good thing. So I am happy to take a few comments, questions. We're still somewhere within the time that we have for this. Glad to tell you about other embarrassing, you know. <laughs> the time that I went with a friend, uh, to, again, to France, I told him, if you don't want me to be your interpreter, I actually know somebody who can do this. But what were we talking about? Nuclear regulation. A regulation of nuclear power plants in France. And he said, you can come as my interpreter. So I said, sure, you know, why not? Um, and when we walked into a room in Toulouse with maybe 35 or 40 people sitting around a table, and the two of us in the front of the room the only thought going across my mind was, thank goodness I am never going to see any of these people again <laughs> for the rest of my life. And that, I believe, has turned out to be true. Um, <laughs> so, luckily. Uh, but anyway, you know, we forged through, and I kind of got them on my team. You know, I did my interpretation, then when there was a word I didn't know, you know, I sort of solicited suggestions from them. So they were, they were great. They, you know, so that was actually a, a good tactic as well. I think you had a question over there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think there's, there's been some attention lately to how women in particular are sort of socialized to apologize for themselves when they're talking or self-minimize by saying, like, well, I don't really know, but I just think whatever. I was wondering if that's something that you've had to deal with or something that you see young women that you teach. I think it's definitely there. I think that women are more likely to give that little prelude before they say something. And I would suggest that the best thing to do is to treat that the same way you treat all those other facilitating words, words such as like, or words such as well, or words such as in my opinion, or whatever. It is your opinion. You know, why do you need to say in my opinion X? You know, we'll assume that unless you're actually saying 
I'm telling you, you know, what somebody else's opinion is. Maybe an article you read, whatever. Uh, but I think it causes the other person to apply the same discount because if you're already saying, well, I don't know, but then the other person has already depreciated to a certain degree the importance of what you're saying. So if you just leave that off, maybe there'll be some follow-up. You know, why do you think that? And you probably have a reason, you know, maybe background. So I, I do think that's a problem. And it's, it gets back to whether you're willing to enter the conversation at all. Uh, because I think a lot of women self-censor. They think, oh, all these other people in the room are making points that are great, and my point is just a little trivial point. It almost certainly is not any more trivial. I mean, I've been teaching here for a long time, as I admitted to you earlier. And I have yet to see any pattern as to who makes the important points and who makes the points that we probably didn't have to have. Um, so it certainly doesn't sort out by gender. It doesn't sort out in any other way that I can think of. It probably sorts out in terms of who really took the time to prepare the material, and I don't, you know, that, that doesn't appear in your forehead, so I don't know uh, at that point. So it, it's a big issue. I'm glad you raised it, and it shouldn't be done. Yes? New Chicago put on a panel this weekend for women in the law, and um, one of the panels was on communication styles. And the panelists told us that if women appear too nice or polite, then sometimes they're seen as not being competent. And if they are too aggressive and brash, they can be seen as competent, but then no one wants to work with them. Brassy, yes. Do you think that happens in your courtroom? Is that still something that's present? I don't think in the... The thing is, at the appellate level... It's so scripted. You know, somebody walks up to the podium, they make their presentation. A lot of the women we see, this is a slightly different problem, but I will say a lot of the women we see are repeat players. They're from the U.S. Attorney's offices. They're from the state's attorney's office, you know, the Illinois um, Department, you know, Attorney General's office, Lisa Madigan, of course, the Attorney General herself, she doesn't argue much, uh, but Carolyn Shapiro, a graduate of this law school, is her Solicitor General, and Carolyn is a fantastic lawyer and, you know, everything. So you're not going to see this as much from the repeat players, because they've got that experiential base. There are not as many women arguing from the private sector, uh, and there's been some interesting work done uh, of late about this perennial problem of how many women reach the higher levels, whether it's partner or whatever it's denominated, uh, in firms. And litigation experience in front of a judge is already so rare. Trials are rare. Um, appellate arguments are quite rare, although they're more common in our circuit than they are in many others. Um, that it's hard for women to get the experience. So the question is, the first time up, you know, are you going to be willing to just, you know, punch in there and just stand your ground? And I guess my only thought, I, I'm not sure I have a big enough empirical sample to say that women don't, but <laughs> although I just remembered one woman uh, who was the first time that I saw who certainly did not have the problem of being... Um, Retiring, um, she was a, a class action lawyer from not in, not from Chicago. I won't tell you where she's from. Um, and uh, no, she did not have a problem with being retiring, and and took me aback quite a bit, um, both by what she was wearing and also um, her her argument style. So it, 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 I tell people actually in general for oral arguments. Um, this is not the time to make your personal statement. This is not the time to wear clothes or do something to your hair that's different or whatever. You want to kind of have your your personal body just blend into the woodwork. You want the judge <laughs> to listen to what you are saying. I can tell you stories, you know, that men who've shown up with hair that looks like Prince Valiant and, you know, or, and I spent the whole argument sitting there thinking, is that a wig? <laughs> <laughs> or not? And then I'd say, ah, can I get a grip? You know, like to myself. And I'd listen to him for about two minutes and then I'd be drift back to 
No, it couldn't be a wig. <laughs> so, you know, not successful. The woman who looked like Mama Cass, you know, with, with like the, the Woodstock look, uh, not the right time. Not the right time. Just bland. You know, I don't care if women wear pantsuits, skirts. I mean, none, none of that really makes a difference to me. But, you know, there's some men, you know, who pick that day to wear like the wildest tie they've ever found in their life. No, <laughs> don't do that. And so maybe that's part of, you know, just you don't want to be too brassy. But on the other hand, men don't want to be shouting obnoxious creeps either. Uh, and they want to really listen to what they say. If there's a woman on the panel, you should not say, as one lawyer once did in a pregnancy discrimination case to me, well, of course, there was no discrimination here because after she had the baby, her figure returned to her usual slim self. <laughs> and I said, you know, I think I've had more babies than you. And uh, <laughs> that's really not a good argument for whether it's <laughs> discrimination or not. It's a bad argument. <laughs> Maybe he needed a little, maybe he needed a female colleague to coach him uh, a little bit. So all perspectives matter, but that one was a bad one. <laughs> so any other, any other thoughts? Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, we've talked about how individuals themselves can kind of do things to make their voices heard. What are some things, in your opinion, that the legal profession as a whole can do to be sure. facilitated? Oh, I think there are a lot of things. And I, I did touch very briefly earlier on mentoring. But it depends a little bit on what kind of legal community you're in. If you're in a great big one, like Chicago or New York or Los Angeles or whatever, um, you're probably going to be looking at you know, opportunities to work with more senior lawyers who, in my view, have a tremendous responsibility to help the younger folks along, help them find those opportunities. It's not so easy. It's not, even in Chicago, it's not that easy to know, given one person's set of interests, you know, what should you do? You know, should you join the Chicago Bar Association and be on their class action committee, or should you become part of the Asian American Bar Association and get involved with their work. There are a lot of really good groups. There's nothing bad about any of them. There's the Women's Bar Association that has uh, a lot of really good programs, actually some great people involved with the Women's Bar Association. There's a Black Women's Bar Association. And what the vice president this year is um, a good a friend of mine who's a former staff attorney from the Seventh Circuit. She's now the chief counsel for the Illinois Department of Corrections. She's just had a great career. But you need the older people to accept the responsibility for that mentoring and make sure that the word gets out. And the word can get out in a city or elsewhere, but it's usually going to be through some kind of organized group, if it's not through your firm. Now, if you're with a big enough firm, uh, they really do have a huge amount in-house that, that will also help. Uh, but yes, I think the, the profession needs to bring along people, probably now more than ever, because the legal profession is in the midst of tremendous changes in its structure. There's some horrifying fact, again, I think, forget the, whether this was today's news that we get from the Seventh Circuit or whether it was possibly in the law bulletin, but this is nationwide. This is not the University of Chicago, so nobody have fit. Um, but I think nationwide, the people who graduated from law school in 2014, only 60% of those people are in jobs that they really need a JD for. It's not that the other 40 are all unemployed, but a good number of the other 40% are in jobs that they could have gotten even before they went to law school. They're probably jobs in business or jobs in you know, entrepreneurial jobs, whatever they may be. And that tells you a lot. It tells you the legal profession is changing. It tells you the economic structure of the profession is changing. So you really need that mentoring more than ever to be able to be adaptable. You're not, you know, back in 1965, I guess, you know, people went to law firms and they got that job and they became partner in eight years and then they, then they retired when they were 65 and were of counsel for another 10 years and then they went off and played golf or something. I'm not sure what they did, but, um, but that's just not the model that you guys are going out into. So your personal skills 
are going to be your assets. Those are going to be the skills that you take around with you. And I really think you need to do some reach out to these associations and others to get those skills once you're out of law school. But you also you know, want to find the associations that really have as a central part of their reason for being that they are trying to do <coughs> Here in Chicago, there are inns of court, some of which are just fantastic. They have meetings, the more senior lawyers and judges will sit down with the younger people, they'll talk to them about, you know, best practices of this or that, or maybe just chat about, you know, this happened last week, you know, how should I respond to that? Just day-to-day -day things can be maybe more meaningful even than some formal program, but you need to meet the people, and you need to break it down so that you can really meet them meaningfully. Yeah? Uh, your talk reminded me of an anecdote I heard at a diversity panel during orientation, which was associates at a law firm were doing practice um, for court, and the, the male associate was kind of making jokes with the partner who was pretending to be the judge, I guess. And um, then the, the female associate came next and tried the same thing, and the partner was like, no, don't do that, you're a woman, and that doesn't look, you know, courts don't like that. And I guess it kind of just made me think of how do you balance kind of trying to be a trailblazer, kind of change the norms, but also wanting to be effective for um, people that you're trying to convince who maybe are biased or have different opinions about what you should be doing. It's very hard, but I guess my starting point is usually to, well, first of all, maybe it shouldn't be this way, but I do think if you're if you are still in some kind of trailblazing position, it really pays to be the best prepared person in the room. Um, and maybe you shouldn't have to be, but it certainly helps. Um, and so getting the work done is critical. I do think it's helpful, though, to... I'm thinking back to when I was at Covington and Berlin, which is the private firm I was where I was, and, and I was basically a work nerd most of the time. I'd go to work, I'd work, 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 and then I'd go home. But I realized, you know, that as I took a little bit of time, just have a cup of coffee, you know, with somebody, or to, or to do, you know, a little bit of downtime with them, people get to know you better. They get to know you as a person, and that's very helpful. It's really, really very helpful. So I wouldn't call that wasted time at all. Once they begin to get to know you as a person, then maybe it's time for the jokes, you know, but I, I think you need to kind of ramp it up. You need to get that credibility first, uh, and then you can, you know, kind of unwind a little bit and show that you can, in fact, be a fun person to go to dinner with, too, you know, if you're out on the road and, you know, Des Moines or something, and you have to have dinner with everybody. People say, great, you know, we're glad, you know, we're all going out together. Well, I think that's about all we have time for, but please join me in thanking you This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.